Hello and welcome back to the IPA's Looking Forward, a weekly podcast of debate and discussion about politics and ideas. This week we look at what is clearly the biggest single threat to Australia's national security. I refer, of course, to Tony Abbott speaking at the CPAC Australia conference earlier this year as we try and figure out what the hell the federal government is actually up to with its foreign influence transparency scheme. We'll also have a good hard look at the Australian Research Council, that's always fun, and the grants it makes for research in the humanities. If you're triggered by post-Occidental rap and all the politics of food, you're going to love this. Uh, Then we reflect on the reaction to the IPA's Race Has No Place video, which was released just a little over a week ago. It's a terrific video, and the reaction says a lot about where the debate on the voice of parliament and recognition currently sits in Australia. Finally, our always popular books and culture segment, uh, the panel will be sharing what they've been reading, watching and listening to. Uh, This week we have some rippers. We have Joel Edgerton's take on the legend of Henry V and his erstwhile drinking buddy Falstaff. We have James C. Scott's book Against the Grain, which is about the earliest civilizations. David Watkins' classic book, well I say that, I hadn't actually heard of it until Morgan told me. It's a classic book called uh, Morality and Architecture. And then we also have a Netflix documentary on Bill Gates, which is scarily called Inside Bill's Brain. Don't forget, this podcast is brought to you by the Institute of Public Affairs. If you're not already a supporter, please do go to ipa.org.au and see how you can join or donate. And however you are watching or listening, whether it's on SoundCloud or YouTube or whatever, please make sure you subscribe so you don't miss out on more wonderful episodes of Looking Forward. It's time now for me to introduce my fellow fellow panellists. First of all, on the line from Spain, no less, uh, my co-host from RMIT University, Dr Chris Berg. G'day, Scott. How are you? I'm very good. Good to have you, mate. Uh, Technology permitting, we'll see. Here we go. And on my left, IPA, (laughs) uh, well, left only geographically, IPA research fellow, (laughs) Morgan Begg. Thanks, Scott. And on my other side... On the right. On the right, definitely on the right, <laughs> uh, Dr. Bella de Brera, who, of course, is our Director of the Foundations of Western Civilization Program. Thank you. Welcome back to the podcast. Uh, as mentioned, we are going to kick off today by talking about the um, uh, imbroglio surrounding CPAP Australia. There's a wonderful interview uh, with Andrew Cooper, uh, the organiser of that event on the Young IPA podcast, uh, where he describes... Uh, the letters that he's received from the Attorney General's Department requesting information and other things about the uh, the conference that he ran under the aegis of the Foreign Influence um, Transparency Scheme. This is our chance and that's why we have Morgan here to tell us more about what this scheme is, what it's allegedly trying to do and what it's actually doing. Yeah. Morgan, take it away. Thanks, Scott. So the, uh, the Foreign Influence Transparency Scheme Act... Uh, was introduced into Parliament in 2017 and uh, its purported design is to uh, introduce a, a registration scheme uh, for for those who seek to influence Australia's political process or lawmaking processes uh, on behalf of a foreign power. Um, so uh, what that means is that foreign, in- foreign uh, individuals and uh, foreign institutions are still free to 
uh, practice their influence in Australia, uh, but they need to be registered onto a list. Uh, and what the, uh, the minister said in his second reading speech was, uh, our democracy holds dear the fundamental uh, values of freedom, equality, the rule of law and mutual respect. This bill supports these values and asks that our foreign partners continue to engage with us, but in an open and transparent manner that will support the integrity of our democratic systems and processes. Um, so far, so good. Yeah, not not uh, a great result so far on that front. Uh, as uh, IPA research uh, found in January this year that uh, the, the provisions in the bill uh, actually gave uh, co you know, broad coercive powers to um, the, the department officials implementing it uh, to demand, uh, unilaterally demand information from anyone who it suspects might be um, uh, required to register under the scheme uh, and swept aside things like the privilege against self-incrimination and the obligation to observe natural justice. Um, so, and what we've seen with uh, Andrew Cooper and with Tony Abbott is that these powers have been used improperly. Um, and I, I, I suppose it begs the question, well, what was the actual intent? You know, obviously these, uh, these groups weren't. It wasn't the American Conservative Union uh, which was meant to be targeted by this. Uh, it was obviously you know, totalitarian regimes who, who want to influence Australia's democracy for their own benefit uh, and uh, the People's Republic of China would be the, the key sort of um, uh, culprit in that. But this was always the point that you did raise, as you say. You, you, you said, <laughs> said this at the time, that if you write powers like this into legislation... Uh, that overwhelm traditional fundamental legal rights. That you can't guarantee that no, you know, the, the, you know, the minister can say what they like. Ministers mm. come and go, but this is what's on the statute books. Uh, if you have these sort of powers without any protections around them, you cannot guarantee how they are going to be used. And lo and behold, here they are being. Uh, in, used in a way that the minister tells us it was never envisaged, but yeah. but it doesn't mean that what the department is doing is outside the law at all. No one's actually claiming that. No, that's right, and that's probably the, it, the most dangerous part. Sorry, Chris. I'll um, go no, ahead. isn't isn't that a it isn't that a catastrophic claim? The idea that we never envisaged that the powers that we wrote would be used in this way. Mm. I cannot think of a better way to describe political. Or, or legislative incompetence, then you write laws and don't envisage the way that powers could be used at all. Oh, we mm. didn't we didn't expect. Now, so there's this debate, and this might be worth having a discussion about. The um, government seems to be arguing that, in fact, the laws are fine. What's happened is that they've been used inappropriately by the department itself. A lack of common um, sense to date. It sounds like was the a lack of common sense. I mean, <laughs> um, that, that's or, the ministry or, said or, that. That's yeah, the yeah. attorney general. It yeah. sounds like the argument that communism works. It just hasn't been applied properly. <laughs> yes, that's right. Sorry, Chris. Yeah, yeah. We, just, we what we what we need is better communism. Yes. Um, <laughs> and, we'll, and we'll keep we'll um, keep replacing we'll keep bureaucrats <laughs> until we find them. Yeah, exactly. But but uh, as opposed to actually having a look at this legislation and pointing out that I now my uh, I'm not a lawyer, and Morgan, you might um, have a position uh, be able to correct me on this. But my um, layperson's reading of the law is that the bureaucrats may well have been just faithfully implementing the legislation that they were given. So yeah. the legislation, and my understanding, it it um, says if you're working on behalf of 
or uh, using the communication of foreign principles. Now, foreign principles, then, then you have to register with um, the Attorney General's Department. Um, foreign principles includes foreign political organizations, yep. and a foreign political inclu- organization includes a foreign organization that exists primarily to pursue political objectives. Now, if that's the case, why isn't the Conservative Political Action Conference one of those? Now, I understand, and Andrew made this point, Andrew Cooper made this point on the Young IPA podcast, that in fact, he wasn't acting on their behalf. They were invited. It was CPAC Australia, a separate entity, and I, I understand that. But but on a bare reading of yep. the law and a bare reading of the facts, why isn't why isn't this covered? I think this is a legitimate use of a terrible, terrible law. Yeah, that's that's right, uh, and it, it, that's um, the law has been written so broadly um, that, of course, this is within the scope of it, um, and. Uh, what we're um, seeing is... Well, this is also what uh, the question is. Are the bureaucrats really being uh, led, if you like? Uh, famously, Senator uh, Christina Keneally yeah. uh, waged a um, uh, one-woman campaign uh, with, with with an amazing absence of a groundswell be, uh, of opinion behind her uh, against uh, C- CPAP and, uh, CPAC and... Uh, uh, Tony Abbott's attendance and, and Nigel Farage and so on. Uh, did the bureaucrats, Chris, do you think, actually just respond to that? It's like, well, oh, well, we, you know, the senators saying that we should have a look at this. I guess we better have a look at it. Well, they well, they well could have. I mean, but but we can't blame bureaucrats um, if they're looking for legitimate um, uh, legitimate violations of the law for finding out information wherever it is. And if Christine Keneally's uh, intervention brought it to their attention that. That you know that may be regrettable, but that that is also the case. I mean, I'll just, I'll I think just it's interrupt worth pointing Chris, out that there's, yeah, uh, because it, uh, the actual case with Cooper is that it didn't involve a violation of the law. Um, but what they what the department was doing was trying to ascertain whether you know, they were satisfying their own curiosity as to whether uh, he should or shouldn't um, uh, register. The the only uh, potential criminal offence that would have arisen was uh, if he didn't. Um, uh, uh, comply with the notice to provide the information. Uh, it's it's just a very bizarre situation. We're, uh, we're yeah, not, not we're not, not dealing with illegal behaviour, really. But not everyone wants to be on a government database. Not everyone yeah. wants to be on a government register. I mean, freedom. <laughs> actually, well, that's not the position of the Attorney General's Department. No, no, clearly. I mean, as, as, as citizens, that's the whole point of this democracy that we live in. That you're you know you're actually meant to be able to go about your business. Um, Morgan mentioned in, no. actually in his op-ed last week the. The, uh, a case in in the US where they'd brought in a similar law and they'd targeted conservative organisations. Is that something that you can? Have we do we know who else has received these letters? Is there is yeah. there a trend? Well, according to reports, there's been um, so Andrew Cooper was sent um, a, a notice, a formal notice under the provisions of the bill and apparently he's been the only one so far which is uh, an indictment well, of the yeah, administration we know of this scheme of. Uh, that, that we know, we know of, of that's right uh, but apparently according to reports 500 other hundreds 500 perhaps uh, letters of some kind have been sent um, advising people to consider whether they should or shouldn't register under the scheme and I, I believe uh, that's the kind of uh, letter that uh, Tony Abbott would have received and, and fishing expedition yeah, yeah, do you think yeah, they sent one to get up 
Yeah, I, mm. I actually, mm. I, mm. I do have a, <laughs> I do actually have a bit of a theory about this, and 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 I will share it, um, because and it's a it's a testable hypothesis. Because you have a podcast. Yeah, that's right. You got to, you got to fill an hour, so you might as well unburden yourself with theories. Um, and it really relates to the elephant in the room, and the elephant in the room here is uh, China, yeah. uh, and its attempt to uh, use various mechanisms for influence within Australia, and you don't have to go the full Clive Hamilton to acknowledge that there certainly are a variety of means that um, uh, the Chinese government and its agencies have used to influence Australian politics, not just Australian opinion, but Australian politics directly. Now, in many ways, and in Canberra, the context for this is in Canberra, there's this um, so-called uh, perennial battle for influence, but you know whether you call them hawks or doves or pro-China, anti-China, or or national security realists versus um, you know the diplomats, and um, it waxes and wanes. You know the diplomats, of course, you know they you know they want to smooth everything down and and keep nice, and they're desperate to arrange more ministerial visits. And there's a lot of day-to-day work that you need to do to make sure that we can keep selling stuff to China and. I get that, and on the other hand, you know, this bill uh, was uh, came out of the work of the National Security Committee of the Parliament and the um, uh, great articulate work of Andrew Hasty. My my theory is that essentially the uh, promulgation of the bill represented the high watermark of you know what you might those of in in the Hasty camp who are about national security and saying this we need to do this because of what China is doing. Mm. But then when, when it gets into the hands of the Attorney General's department, uh, which has, uh, you know, probably the, you know, very high, highly qualified lawyers and legal brains who are not necessarily part of the national security establishment, all they're getting is messages um, that what we need to do is maintain the relationship with China. And, and if you're a bureaucrat thinking, do I want to be the person that blows up the relationship with China um, by, by uh, writing letters to various Chinese businessmen, um, uh, to Chinese government friendship associations, uh, to the Chinese agency that sponsored the, uh, the Lunar Festival in, uh, in Chinatown in some Australian city. They're thinking, am I going to get cover from that from Christian Porter? Or maybe it'd be better if I just went around annoying Tony Abbott instead. Yeah. Because yeah. I, so I actually think <coughs> this we, is a systematic attempt to avoid the elephant in the room. Go, Chris. Well, we don't. We don't know that. We don't know that because uh, there have been notices sent out, and the so unfortunately we don't know. And this is a job, perhaps, for the IPA to to wield the awesome powers of freedom of information to find out who else mm-hmm. has received these sorts of letters. But but by by and large, we don't know, and we do know that there is a list, and, and Morgan mentioned that something like five hundred individuals or organisations as well. I think the bigger problem here is that the legislation that the Hasty Camp. And uh, maybe it's unfair to Andrew Hasty to pick him out on this, but the legislation that they wanted to write was shut down the Confucius centers. They can't write that legislation because it would look like they're targeting one specific <laughs> country. Yeah. Um, and so instead, what they're trying to do is, okay, how can we apply general? We come up with general principles that will cover Terrible. all the things that we are concerned that China might be doing. And it comes all the way, and eventually they come down to a foreign organization that exists primarily to pursue political objectives. And now, listeners might not be surprised to hear that, but we in the free market movement, we spend a lot of time working with our counterparts around the world to build a global free market movement, working with lots of foreign organizations that exist primarily to pursue political objectives. And that's perfectly, that's not just fine, that's 
desirable. That's how we have a global movement towards liberty, how we can share ideas, yeah, yeah, how yeah. we can well, coordinate. We define freedom as a political is, objective, yeah. This is, well, but it is, isn't it? Uh, it and, and the idea that suddenly we've got the attorney general's department has interest in the way that we think about freedom in Australia, I think is just obscene. Now, I, I understand that it comes from a concern about Chinese foreign influence, but in the absence of writing the Chinese Foreign Influence Act, I think this is very dangerous legislation. Of that course, has been it's the worst to, way to write. I wanted to ask Bella what you know what would have been the the uh, as we say in the AFL the direct route to goal um, with the Confucius Institute. Just just shut them down <laughs> because these are <laughs> because they're, they're, they're partnering they're with partnering university. With the uni they're partnering. It's the Chinese government partnering with 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 universities directly, which are creatures of generally state or federal legislation. Yes. So can't we can't we just didn't they do that in America? Haven't they shut down Confucius Institutes and uh, some state governments have been involved. Mm -hmm. uh, in other cases, uh, say the University of Chicago, they've done it uh, of their own accord. Uh, the New South Wales Department of Education um, is the only organisation I'm aware of in Australia that has actually taken that step. We're so it is possible. It is certainly yeah. possible. Um, um, you know, there might well be a, a term on the. Um, on the arrangements that they have. Perhaps the diplomatic route would be to simply let these things expire, but uh, they could be nudged by certain ministers and governments. I think they probably could. Well, I mean, Dan Tan started a, Tian, sorry, has started a, um, a, a task force and appointed a task force to do something about it. But I think that was about oh, goodness. two or three months ago. A task force? Yes, and uh, <laughs> nothing's happened yet. Well, why, um, doesn't, why doesn't that surprise me? I mean, obviously they need to focus on UQ, which is seems to be the most deeply embroiled um, and problematic university when it comes to Confucius Institutes. Bella, wasn't it at UQ where uh, the nature of the relationship with the Confucius Institute had gotten so warm and friendly that they actually appointed um, uh, the Consul General as a adjunct, adjunct professor? Adjunct, uh, yes, adjunct fellow, uh, professor of languages and culture. Oh, yes. Oh, good. Oh, well, I, we all might start sponsoring universities then and see whether we can all become professors. That would be very Not nice. a bad gig if you can get it. Yes, <laughs> could, could work if you can get it. Um, uh, we might have to um, leave that there, but there's, this is certainly one that has a long time, uh, you know, it's got to play out. Uh, we've seen um, uh, Andrew Cooper has refused essentially to comply with the request from the Attorney General's uh, Department, so the IPA will certainly be um, following that and uh, keeping an eye on it. But we do have other things to talk about, and part of it is um, some great research, um, Bella, that you've done about another arm of the Australian government, which is the Australian Research Council. Um, now, we're actually, we're on YouTube. Can you hold up your report there, please, Bella? Yes, I can. This is called Humanities in Crisis. Humanities in Crisis. Um, an audit of taxpayer-funded ARC grants, with a lovely picture there on the front of the uh, Raphael's um, School of Athens torn asunder to signify the humanities in crisis for yes. people who can't see the, the image. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll extremely symbolic. Extremely it's extremely symbolic. Yes. Um, so this is uh, my latest sort of um, gr hand grenade thrown into the universities, I suppose, um, one of many. It's. It, I looked at And they're always so warmly yeah, received. It's a, they yeah, they love it. In the they spirit of open inquiry and discussion I keep, and debate. I get job offers every day. It's amazing. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> um, adjunct professor. Adjunct professor of <laughs> cultural language. <Yes. laughs> uh, so I looked at uh, 17 years of funding in the humanities, so subjects, anthropology, criminology, something called human geography, historical studies, cultural studies, everything you can think of that is a study 
um, is funded by the ARC. Um, so counted it all up, it is $1.3 billion Ooh. in 17 years. And for, the, and for those listening on the podcast, Bella did put a finger to the corner of her mouth yep. and say $1.3 billion. $1.3 billion. Dollars. <laughs> uh, total funding for all these, these subjects. Um, and um, I drilled down and had a look at uh, just the historical s- subjects, s- historical studies, because that's sort of where we've been looking for the last couple of years in our other reports. Um, and they, I found that in 17 years, they've funded 616 historical studies subjects, and that has come to an amount of $192 million. Um, and is there a, any sort of pattern, let me think. perhaps, <laughs> that you might have identified in these various research well, grants? There's, there's no guesses um, as to the most popular theme in historical studies, which is, of course, identity politics, class, race, and gender. And this is in, this is seventeen years worth. So this is not it. It, it hasn't come about suddenly. Um, you can go back to two thousand and two, two thousand and three, and find these things. Um, after identity politics, it's indigenous studies and history. Remember that this is all of history. It's not just Australian history grants as well. So that's quite significant, I think, that that's still a, a research priority. Um, and then war and conflict is the, sort of the third most popular theme. Um, but, you know, it, it's, it's not surprising. Um, it's not surprising that they choose identity politics over anything else um, because this is the way... This is the way humanities is going and has gone and has been going for the last last 17 years. And we seem to be coming up on the end of it, um, even though we've only been talking about it for the last three years. It's, it's been around a while. Um, I have, obviously, some some of my favorite examples. I don't know if I should read them out. Oh, I think we can have a few. Actually, I have one. More. I have one. Yeah, you go, and then I'll see whether it matches, matches my own favorite. Well, I think the favorite so far has been um, Macquarie University. Is that your favorite? Oh, dang, yes. Yes. That was exactly <laughs> it. Discovery, uh, Discovery Early Career Award, $391,685 for um, sexing scholasticism. Gender in Medieval Thought, 1150 to 1520. This project explores medieval theological debates about why it was necessary that Christ was born as a man. Mm. So... I'd I'd love to know the outcome. Do do we know why? We don't (laughs) know why. Have we got a a conclusion? (laughs) I'm going to have to look to see if they've actually, if anything's come out of it, which is obviously the the other point of the fact that we don't know what came out of this research because it's... It, we never find out that the, the Australian public never finds yeah. out. We give them we give them all this money. It's our taxes, and we we have no, there's no discernible um, outcome or benefit for Australians. We yeah. don't know what what they concluded. Yeah, I think that's a that's a trend across all sort of social sciences research uh, is the idea that uh, it's not meant to be read or cited mm. or used in any sort of productive way. It's um, it's something that I would consider the, uh, the culture of complete self-gratification in academia. Um, the, the idea that you just do things for yourself. Yes, um, it's, it's, it's very inward-looking. Yeah, and yeah. Um, I'd argue that you know, um, these academics who are, who are in the humanities have, have a duty to, to talk about the Western... They have the, they have the privilege of spending their lives in academia... Um, if they want to, they can just read Shakespeare for 15 or 20 or 30 years. The rest of us don't have that luxury. We have to go out and mm-hmm. work. Um, but they, but we, they, we but hopefully wouldn't pay them to do that. Though. They're failing in their duty. <laughs> they're failing in their duty to to um, to to give us 
something for us, yeah. <laughs> give us value for money. Um, and I think Morgan's right. It's it's very inward looking. It's very it's very narrow. But that's yeah. what identity politics yeah. is. I just isn't point. It? I wanted to point to this other example. Um, I think it was in the last week or two, the second oldest university publishing house in Australia, UWA Publishing, announced that it would be shutting its doors. Um, and it's no wonder why when you look at some of their recent publications. <laughs> uh, you have countless books on you know, poetry. Um, you ha- I saw oh, a book that was dedicated right. to writing against Andrew Bolt, just de- dedicated to him as an individual. Um, and autobiographical works from people who are only of note uh, within the academic mm. publishing world uh, and who seem to only be published uh, in order to win prizes <laughs> or, or perhaps uh, chase further grants. But there's no sort of idea that uh, you might be uh, distributing this to the wider community, which happens to pay for it. Mm. Yeah, well, it's... it's um, but, but sure, we've got to, we, surely we've got to decide what our critique... I mean, that, that's a public publisher and, yeah, the material may not be to everyone's taste. But at least that is an attempt to distribute that information, and there, there's an attempt to. Uh, I'm not defending their their particular title, list, but there's the idea that people are publishing out of the back of their academic work is is desirable, and publishing in accessible environments. I think there's a really legitimate critique of academia, and it's one that I make a lot in while while I'm in academia in that people are not producing material that's accessible to the general public. The general public very often funds it, but then we can't turn around and also be angry when they try to do so. Yeah, I, I, if, if what you're saying is, um, yeah, I, I too uh, would actually support the idea of university publishing. And I, I think the fact that they're walking away from it, uh, and it's not just at that university, but across the board, is not just because... There's, there's hardly any, you know, publishable works that anybody would ever buy uh, a volume of. Um, but it's, it's reflecting a wider disconnection that the universities actually have with the society which supports them. Um, it's, not yeah, that, it's not that society, you know, um, that they should publish, you know, endless encomiums of how wonderful Australia is, but some, some sense that they actually care about the things that Australian connect with that they will explore the the themes that um and, and go deeper into issues that uh, or historical questions mm. or, or the literature of this country um or, or the or the wider western tradition in which it sits instead what we're seeing is this, this complete inwardness and this complete uh, self-serving sort of uh, research agenda and and why we even need research grants in the humanities is another question we might need universities but this whole mm. arc system is a joke um, but, yeah, they're turning their backs yeah, uh, on, on the country. And the thing that concerns me about the UWA thing is the continuation of the conversation that we had with, with I think it was Andrew and Zach a few weeks ago, about um, uh, the, the issue that academics aren't incentivized to study Australia. It's very hard to get um, studies of Australian policy, Australian history, Australian culture actually published in, um, uh, in, in books because the publishers aren't there as much as they used to be and in good journals or journals that the universities highly rate and if the journal is highly rated then that makes helps you build a better cv which gets you a promotion and so forth so there's a hell of a lot of the perversities in there but i have to say to, to return to the topic one of those perversities is the fact that 
academics are expected to get these sorts of ARC grants. It's not just if you need the money to fund you know, a, a hadron collider or something, um, or if you need the money for chemistry equipment, you should go and get a grant. No, there's an expectation that you just are getting grants. Yeah, as, 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 as your RMIT, one who gets grants. As your RMIT colleague, uh, uh, Sinclair Davidson, um, uh, put it, uh, the dirty little secret is that um, uh, what other people would see as an input, which is an ARC grant, university sees an output. Like, what did you achieve this year? Yeah, well, no. I got this grant. Mm. And, and that, that, gets, that, that gets counted as research. Yeah, that, that's the output. I got the grant. Um, and, 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 and look, you know, it's such a – you're right, it creates terrible perverse incentives. Would we be any worse, really – Chris, if we just took the money, it's not insignificant, but I'll take, I'll just forget about being a long-suffering taxpayer for a minute. Would, could we just hand it out more or less at random to universities or hand it out pro rata to universities and just let them deal with it? Why do we need the ARC to go through this charade of, of, of taking these um, uh, ridiculous research proposals and handing them out to, to people who really shouldn't have been employed in the first place? At least if you gave it well, to well, RMIT, there's some accountability there. Well, I, I'm not sure I'd want to give it to the, the organisations themselves, but I will point out there's a lot to be said about randomly allocating these sorts of grants. Yeah. The amount of effort that is put into the grants is just mm. extraordinary. And I'm looking at some data from, it's a couple of years old now, and it's probably gotten a lot worse, preparing a new proposal for not actually the ARC, but the National Health Medical Research um, uh, Centre, which is like the ARC, but for medicine. Um, that a individual grant takes 38 working days of research a time oh. mm. and only has a 21% chance of success. Now, 21% is actually really high compared to the ARC, where we talk about grant success rates around 13% or so, or 11%, depending on the specific scheme. So around the country, we are paying and students are paying academics massive amounts of money to chase grants that are very unlikely to be received for the purposes really just of chasing those mm. grants and spending huge amounts of time on it. Uh, it. It is a deeply, deeply perverse and destructive system if you care about scholarship, if you care about, well, getting bang for buck. Um, uh, and, and I think that's one of the, the biggest issues with the IRC, just uh, the ARC. It's just the waste in a going for these ARC grants. So my, my personal preference would be randomly allocate them and then skill at writing grants doesn't become mm. a really key yep, part of everybody's sort of promotion yeah. Yeah. yeah, No, no. Sortition, precisely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And if that means... There'll be some... Yeah, what? there'll be some kinks to work out. Well, the, mm. but, um, the, the output couldn't, couldn't be worse. <laughs> I'd love to see the ones that don't make no. the cut. Or, or, or they, or they start. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure. I'm sure we could give it to Endemol Southern Cross and have them, you know, fund some kind of um, uh, televised competition where you know you have like Shark Tank, <laughs> where where you actually go up before the panel, you know, and in you front of a live live studio sell audience. Sell the idea in five t five minutes. Oh man, why, why would that be amazing? If one percent of the yeah. ARC's budget to do that. <laughs> now, <laughs> what, what what that and shoot, do, and you pull the lever and, and you should have just what? ordinary Australians judging. Yeah, sorry, Chris. <laughs> but what 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 that system wouldn't do is, unless you had the ordinary Australians judging, what that wouldn't do is sort of reset 
the um, uh, the research topics because the research topics the government is not coming up with them and the IRC is not coming up with them mm. but the researchers themselves are coming up with these topics and of course it's senior researchers that are on the judging panels but I think we need to come back to the fact that an ARC grant is technically a grant from a minister the minister gives the grant the ARC yeah. is an advisory body yes which so is- when you read when when we read that um, you know a grant was handed out by um, uh, a ARC grant was received for, by someone for finding out whether it was necessary that Christ was a man, well, in fact, that's the education minister that handed out that grant. So whoever the education minister was in 2013, um, uh, probably at that stage, it was. Christopher Pine. Yeah, um, sorry, this is why um, Simon Birmingham last year was perfectly entitled to, to veto, you know, $42 million worth of grants because he yeah, thought them, yeah, that was right. his job. That was He thought them too ridiculous. And, um, of course, the academic community became hysterical and said that it was, it, it was interference. Um, but it's his job. No, so, good on him for that. There's quite an amusing there's a, there's quite an amusing thing that's happened in the ARC space. And full disclosure, I have actually an application with the ARC at the moment on, of course, much more important work um, <laughs> on <laughs> blockchain <laughs> research, yes, yes, um, uh, and which is going to do great things for the country if we get it. But there's an amusing thing that's happened now that Dan Tian, the current education minister, has quite rightly realised that in fact these are grants from a minister. And why should I just let the ARC announce them? In, instead, what he's doing is he's giving them to local MPs in the areas of the university <laughs> and saying, you announce them. <laughs> um, so, because hmm. they, they are government grants. They are grants from the education minister to researchers. Why not use them as the, you would any other grant? Oh, well, just in, so, so uh, just as they would hand it out for the, for the local roads or the local schools, now, now it's uh, whatever local university uh, it, gets a grant. It, Exactly. If it's if it's valuable enough to give, it's valuable enough to yeah. talk about. Well, it's good to see someone's getting value out of the grants, even if it is only the um, government backbencher in a certain area. Um, <laughs> well, speak back back uh, since we're speaking about federal parliamentarians, um, uh, we have been at the IPA, as everyone knows, looking for a long time at the um, uh, questions of uh, constitutional change to um, uh, increase. Uh, recognition in various forms uh, for the Indigenous people of Australia and uh, we've been very much discussing the Indigenous voice to Parliament and we recently released a video on the 31st of October. It was uh, a video containing commentary from uh, a wonderful lineup of Australians, uh, including Senator James McGrath from Queensland, Dr Anthony Dillon, who is a research fellow at the Australian Catholic University, Uh, Jacinta uh, Nampajimpa Price, who is the Director of Indigenous Programs at the Centre for Independent Studies, and Lorraine Finlay, who's a lecturer in law at Murdoch University, which really spoke to the uh, the topical issue of a voice to Parliament. Uh, And uh, the reaction to this video, Morgan, uh, really told us something about where the debate is at the moment. (laughs) Yes, uh, the idea that uh, race might not have a place in the Australian Constitution uh, continues to be an upsetting uh, idea. Uh, I'll just highlight a few comments that uh, stood out do. to me. Um, we saw, I saw Kevin Rudd tweeted that uh, the Liberals, and by the Liberals he means the IPA, I assume, uh, uh, just can't resist playing the politics of race. Um, 
The opposition Indigenous Affairs spokeswoman Linda Burney called the arguments misleading and incendiary. Uh, Our political leaders have a duty to ensure this important national discussion is both civil and informed. I don't know what that means, but that sounds pretty creepy. <laughs> yes. I mean, the, 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 uh, the speakers in the video were nothing other than civil. Absolutely. This, this, yeah, absolutely. this is a debate about constitutional change and we had yeah. sensible people explaining why they did not think that was a good idea. Yeah. And, uh, and, it, and, and indeed that they thought it was divisive. If, if, the, if the figures in that video uh, are, with, are with outside the bounds of civil and informed debate, then there will only be one side of the debate presented. <laughs> uh, and finally, uh, Ken Wyatt, the uh, Minister for Indigenous Australians, uh, expressed his uh, quote-unquote disappointment uh, that the IPA has engaged in bigotry by invoking the terminology of race. Um, I would I would obviously reject that. I, <laughs> that uh, given the nature of the proposal that uh, acknowledging the reality that you are uh, making a distinction between Australians on racial grounds and then implementing that distinction in either uh, the constitution or in legislation um, is honest and it, we are not the ones, the IPA is not the ones invoking the concept of race. Um, Chris, I, I believe you had some thoughts about this. Yeah, yeah. So the constitution invokes the, uh, uh, race in the constitution right now. Mm. What, what is remarkable about this is um, it's doubling down of a strategy that um, is rem- is remarkably new. So this debate has been going on for the better part of five or six years. Mm. The IPA has been involved in that debate for the better part of five or six years. When the IPA first started launching its campaign, race has no place. Race has no place refers to the fact that we also, or the IPA also, or Liberals also, want to get rid of mentions of race in the Constitution, of which there are two, one of which is quite pernicious and Mm. one of which is um, uh, is bad optics. So the bad optics one is, of course, Section 25, which can be mostly removed and refers to concerns about um, uh, uh, statistics that are, um, uh, are less salient these days. But the other one, mm. of course, is the race power. Yep. And the IPA has called for the race power to be removed from the Constitution because race has no place. Now, what since that debate about the Constitution has morphed into, in fact, we need this voiced parliament, which is a relatively recent idea. Now, the idea that you would even be talking about getting rid of race in the Constitution has become apparently offensive, because now we only are allowed to talk about um, indigeneity, indigeneity being a descriptor for people who were there before settlers were there. Now, I'm not sure that, um, uh, that most Australians actually understand the um, distinction between indigeneity and race, but more fundamentally, it is completely separate from the debate we have been having for the past six years. Don't strengthen the race power mm. to allow um, uh, governments to do more in the ra- in, 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 in Aboriginal affairs. Abolish the race power. Yes, and, and move away from measures which uh, try to say that uh, we're going to treat uh, some people, some people, some Australians as separate and uh, treated, uh, uh, have their democratic representation achieved through uh, 
uh, a unique means mm-hmm. um, to be um, you know to be reckoned uh, differently. I was I was looking back over Anthony Dillon's work, and of course he's you know he's got a strong body of, of work. Um, is, is that as I mentioned, he's at Australian Catholic University, and um, you know the, the the roots of what why he participated in the video go deeper. He asked questions like, "What is Aboriginal culture?" A more fundamental question. Uh, what is Aboriginal? Who is an Aboriginal person? Uh, for someone whose great-great-grandfather was Aboriginal, do they count as Aboriginal? So you have these sorts of problems when it comes to culture. So, and, and he talks about, you know, the, the role of culture, of ancestry. So he's talking about the very, very practical issues of what happens when you uh, not only not step back from race but actually use a race power, and you can call it indigeneity, but it's a rose by any other name, would smell as sweet. Um, he's saying these, these are the sort of issues that come up and you can't avoid them. So that's why the Voice to Parliament proposal particularly ra- you know, really highlights these issues of saying we, we're going to pick out certain Australians and rather than saying we're all Australian and we can work together and we can address social issues and we can um, uh, recognise the different cultures in this country, we, we're going to create this, uh, this alternative mechanism it may not be in the constitution at first, but certainly many of the uh, participants in this debate are saying, well, we'll accept uh, the government legislating for it at first and then we'll move to have it in the constitution. So, yep. a- as you say, if, if, if the measured, considered contribution of someone like Anthony Dillon is seen as beyond the pale of legitimate debate, well, I don't know how we can actually have any yeah. kind of debate. <laughs> There'll be no debate. But, but, it's, because, but it's because Wyatt and um, some of the other opponents don't want to reckon with the fact that this process has gotten wildly out of control. There's absolutely no way that this can be landed. Um, When it began with, it began with a conversation about recognition and removing mentions of race from the Constitution. Now we are talking about a legislative separate body or legislatively enacted separate body that may or may not get into the Constitution, that we are a long, long way away from where this process started as part of a reconciliation movement. Oh, indeed. Oh, and, a, and there is, and there is still a, a separate... Grand legislative change. There is still a separate process running for constitutional recognition, which is a separate process from the process for a legislated voice to Parliament. I mean, how... Any Australian is meant to actually make any who's not working full time on this is actually supposed to make any sense of it all uh, at all out of it is is beyond me. I mean the no, thought, and they're not, and they're not supposed to, and they're not supposed to. Well, and yeah, unfor- unfortunately, to change the constitution, you need to have a referendum. So that's yeah, it. you do, you do, but, but we're supposed to get by it just on good vibes, remembering <laughs> the last good referendum. Um, uh, of 1967, that of course no one can accurately describe what actually occurred. Uh, all these people wandering around saying it finally gave Indigenous people the right to vote, which is of course not at all what the 1967 referendum did. But but we're just supposed to get the good vibes, we'll wave it through, and then we'll be reconciled. Yes. Well, good luck. Oh, and it's all meant to happen uh, essentially uh, in in this term of Parliament. Which would make, I think uh, Morgan, um, Australia's foremost constitutional lawyer, the, you need a bill in Parliament to uh, put up a proposal for a referendum. Yes, is that yes, correct? Yes, yeah, uh, no indication of that. Uh, so, so within or. this term of Parliament, there's going to be <laughs> yep. legislation uh, to for a referendum yep. on recognition. Yep. 
then that and debate. there's also going to be legislation for a voice to parliament in this term of yeah, parliament. Yeah, apparently. <laughs> Boy, I'd love to go down to Ladbrokes and <laughs> <laughs> see what kind of yeah, odds I could get on either or both of yep. those things happening. Uh, we have come to that segment of the show where we talk books and culture and uh, get our wonderful panellists to share what they've been reading, watching or listening to. Now, I'm, I'm looking at Bella because um, she has a tremendous selection um, which is something that anyone with access to Netflix can watch. Yes, and if you do have at uh, Atflix, I was about to say Atflix to net net watch um, access to Netflix, you must watch <laughs> The King, um, which I missed. It was out in the cinema for about two weeks, and I missed it. Um, and it is just, it's brilliant. Um, it's a Australian producer and an Australian screenwriter, and um, they've sort of. M- done a bit of a mishmash of the Henry ads of um, Henry the Fourth parts one and two and Henry the fifth not they don't really follow the, the Shakespeare play very closely but um, but nonetheless it's it's an absolutely brilliant production um, and I was totally transfixed for the for the entire for the entire two and a half I think two hours and 20 minutes um, you know they stick loosely to the story of of the boy who's who's living a life outside court living this sort of debauched life with with full staff who then becomes king and the transformation and the Battle of Agincourt and everything else. I won't wreck it for everyone, but it is phenomenal. Um, and I, I really encourage everyone to, to, to watch that. You know, um, I talked about uh, uh, Harold Bloom, the great literary critic who only uh, died recently in, in the Western canon. Uh, he talks about uh, those books and, you know, Falstaff, this, you know, fat, jovial, mm. uh, venial you know thief and and drunkard um you know who was you know genuinely friends with with young hell but also you know thinking about the main chance is one of the great characters yeah. in fiction you know totally out you know sort of outstripped even shakespeare's control you know sort of um once he'd created Falstaff, he sort of then lost control it's, it's a wonderful idea and but Joel Edgerton plays him in this and, and sort of dials it down a little bit. He like, does, yeah. You know, not, not, and, and makes him more of a serious uh, military person, in, he, in fact. He dials him down. I mean, I don't want to, 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 um, to give the plot line away, but he does dial him down. He's not a buffoon. Mm. He's not a buffoon and he has a very different ending um, in the film uh, to, to the actual play. Um, so... And it, look, I just—it was the the way they created that that medieval world that this the sort of the filth and the smell and mm. the lack of you know nobody was washing their hair, um, the king dying of sort of the pox and you, you yep. know you could almost smell the, the open drains. You could almost smell the open drains. <laughs> <laughs> um, and the costumes were fantastic. And it was produced by uh, Brad Pitt was one of the producers, which I was really yeah. surprised about. So Joel, Joel Edgerton's clearly moving um, uh, in pretty exalted company in but Hollywood. But it did, it did give me hope that mm. people can still act and people can still put a really decent decent story together. Excellent. And then you could always go back to the um, Kenneth Branagh or Laurence Olivier yes. versions yes. Of, of, of Henry yeah. V, if you're so minded. I saw the best ever production of Henry V at the Globe about 10 years ago, um, and I was a groundling. And um, one of the reviewers said that he was so convincing that everyone on every, all the groundlings wanted to follow him into battle, you know, after the, <laughs> after the, the follow him out the Globe and into the streets of London to start. <laughs> take on the French. <laughs> exactly, to take on so the French. They, they should have uh, run at the same time as a World Cup match. Could have got ugly. <laughs> um, uh, Chris, you wanted to talk about James C. Scott's book. Yeah, so I read um, James C. Scott. is a political scientist's book, Against the Grain, A Deep History of the Earliest States. This is actually 
published in 2017, but James Scott is one of my favourite authors, mainly because of um, his earlier uh, book from 1998, Seeing Like a State. Um, but anyway, so, so Scott's most recent book is um, uh, Against the Grain, about the um, role that grain played in the development of state power and, uh, and the role that grain played in moving, quote, civilization away from hunter-gatherer into these sort of large states. Um, grain is important for a bunch of reasons, but the real one that he narrows down on is grain is really easy to tax. It's really easy to be used as rations. <clears throat> and the need to grow grain made forced labor really central, central to, to state power. So he points out that um, early states are actually incredibly short-lived. Um, and his argument is that when they collapse, um, that the descent into what we've described as bar- barbarism or the Dark Ages was actually more like a return of freedom, given the amazing coercive taxation and forced labor powers that these early states um, imposed on their populations. And so so it, it, the, the way you can think about this is very often we spend a lot of time um, looking at great archaeology. So I'm traveling through Europe at the moment. So I was in in in, in Athens uh, last week and looked at, you know, you do the Athens thing, so you visit the Parthenon and, and so forth. But those are big illustrations of state power. When I wanted to see a um, illustration of democratic order, you go to something called the Pinks, which is the place that they had the, the large voting assemblies on. And, and there are almost no visitors there. It's just this sort of flat field that's super important in the history of democracy. But that sort of the people power you don't really see. The people, um, you only ever see the illustrations of large state control. Now, I don't think I buy everything in this. So this is the idea that sort of what large-scale agriculture and irrigation, this is the old sort of theory that, you know, irrigation created the state in Egypt and then that's why Egypt was that 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 sort of, uh, you know, had all the, all the all the big temples, you know, because they could actually yeah, extract yeah, the surplus at, from, the, from the poor old peasants. James Scott seems to think this is a really new thesis, but it's actually quite an old one and... I remember reading Jared Diamond essays in the 1980s that yeah. have, have made precisely this this, fat, uh, this claim. But what it is actually quite good at is pointing out that um, uh, the, the hunter-gatherer the hunter lifestyle is not necessarily um, uh, a step back from civilization itself. It's just much harder to see in the archaeological records. Now, I'm still pro-agriculture and I'll I'm pro-civilization and all that sort of thing, but it is nonetheless an argument that yeah. um, should be recognised. I, I mean, we the, think about the. I mean, we've been talking about the indigenous people of Australia, and and one of the claims made is that uh, for indigenous people in hunter-gatherer societies, be they in Australia or South America or whatever, you know, pre-contact uh, with the West, that you know their their lives. Um, got worse as they moved into modernity or you know or, you know at that point of transition they things get much worse before they get better and you know, that's not an unreasonable claim uh, i mean and and also well, but, yeah i mean does he also grapple Sorry. grapple with yeah I, th- I think four hours a day was the famous claim wasn't it? he only had to work four hours a day as a hunter-gatherer yeah look and uh, he, he certainly 
uh, uh, make that. I, I it does sound good. But um, uh, it's very hard, of course, to, to have large families if you desire large families. Or, um, but but even even so, I mean, we we have periods of history in which, say, industrialization causes you know lower health outcomes for the people who move to the cities because you know the 18th century London was grimy and disgusting and 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 diseased and all that sort of thing. Yet, nonetheless, people still made that choice. I think James Scott is most compelling when he points out that, in fact, people often weren't making the choice because the thing about grain farming in the early states was you needed to force people to work on those farms, hence force poor labour or or outright slave labouring. So I think there's a bunch of things that you have to tackle. It's, It's one thing for you to make a choice to to go to a city or go to a state to, to, you know, have a better life for yourself. It's quite another if the state is forcing you to do Yeah, well, I remember being about 14 summer holidays on the tractor uh, in, in the grain fields thinking, hmm, I better get back to my books, see if I can study and get down to Melbourne <laughs> as soon as I possibly can. <laughs> Morgan, how about you? Um, yeah, so I'm usually the first person in a room to... Uh, completely reject social media but uh, the credit for this uh, culture pick actually comes from a former looking forward guest Christian Kerr right, uh, man. Who, yep. po- who posted on Facebook the uh, the 37th oddly enough 37th anniversary of the release of an album by uh, the 80s English uh, pop band Orchestral Maneuvers in the Dark uh, and their, the name of their album was uh, Architecture and Morality and what I also found out from Christian was that uh, this was named after a book by the uh, the high Tory architectural historian David Watkin, and uh, I hadn't heard of this, uh, and I, I I was very excited so to check it out. Role after, of I to album, <laughs> after I listened to the album, after I listened to the album, I read the book, uh, <laughs> uh, and like the band, I, I suppose the um, this book might have fallen down the memory hole. I suspect, but uh, that that shouldn't um, that shouldn't underscore its uh, importance, or it shouldn't take away from its importance uh, in. Uh, sort of the architectural theory and architectural history um, in the 20th century. So um, what what it, uh, I suppose I should just go through what it uh, does, what Watkin does, uh, is he addresses the, uh, the Hegelian illusion that all art and all thought and all institutions uh, must be true to the zeitgeist or the spirit of the times. And, to, uh, and in architecture, this would mean that uh, attempting to build in a style that wasn't from your current time period um, is, uh, by definition, a retrograde uh, step. So uh, I suppose this is the, um, the, the modernist school um, of, uh, of architectural theory. Uh, and it might not, I'm not too sure, it might not have been the first uh, book to really challenge the modernist school, um, but I'd, I would argue that it wasn't the most powerful and it's probably the most, uh, it's had the best legacy uh, in that um, it's, the worst excesses of modernist architecture, the brutalism, uh, have since been uh, rejected sort of en masse. They're, they've fallen completely out of favour. Um, when, when did he write it, Morgan? Sorry, this was, sorry, this was 1977, okay. I believe. So, yeah, which was really at the height of that sort of yeah, brutalist it's period. When it was going up. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. So, I, I, for anyone listening and, and you have access to a computer, um, quickly have a look at the, the High Court building. Oh, yeah, it's or I've got a better one. Yes. The Trellick Tower in London. Okay. Which is now listed, but it was designed by a Hungarian called Goldfinger, 
<laughs> actually inspired no in one. Fleming. Um, and it's um, it's still in London. It's it's an it's 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 become a landmark. It's an eyesore slash landmark. Yeah. But it was this utopian dream of having everyone um, living in this yeah. um, c- c- commune, yeah. and it just turned into a crime scene essentially. In um, until that's one of the, people were able to buy their own flats thanks to Margaret Thatcher, oh, yeah. and they started looking after their their own pro- the property. Yeah, that's one of the interesting things. So when we look at these brutalist buildings in the 2010s now, as they're just disgusting, but they've all been privatized. In fact, when they were building these brutalist monstrosities, mm. they were actually trying to be driven by very complicated sort of quasi-socialist world view. Yeah. That the that the design of the building was supposed to be de-individuating so that you would spend more time mm. outside. Yeah. <laughs> and all these all these horrible so it, it's not just ugly, it's also ugly and social engineering. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Um the um that's what I was thinking about while reading the book actually was the um the the sort of diminution of the human spirit that comes across from this um uh, modernist mindset. And it's not just in architecture, it's in any sort of visual artistic medium uh, in all you know, uh, painting or photography, cinematography, um, advertising, the, 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 kinds of, the kinds of people that are cast in films and, and television even. Uh, the idea that uh, not only is it not necessary to be beautiful or to strive for beautiful, but it's that it's wrong or it's immoral to assert that things should be beautiful. Um, and the reason I, and I was thinking of this just because this, these this are the is the classic white Western patriarchal view that mm. uh, there is this, this thing is called beauty. This is Sir Roger's yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. view. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. You, you, you view. Yes. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Something should be unashamed, beautiful. Huh? Unashamedly, unashamedly. Well, the thing is that these are things that we have to engage with every day. We all have and to live in them. We, live live, in them. we have to live mm. and work in these buildings. We have to walk past these buildings. Uh, we have to wear the clothes, mm. uh, uh, the, the fashions that are subject to these trends. Uh, we have to watch these advertisements. We have to be exposed to them. Um, but the rule, the people that are making the rules about what they can be say that uh, rather than lift our spirits, they, they, should, they should not excite us. They should not amaze us. Um, they should not make us happy, happier to go about our day, uh, to go about our days. I, I feel like it's a sadder world because we've rejected aesthetics. But that book, on a positive note, it was part of a fight back. And I, yeah. I, I, yeah. I, saw, I, yeah. I saw actually that there's yeah. a successor work called um, Morality and Architecture uh, Revisited. 25 years after the original. Yeah, 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 so, yeah. so he just yeah. um, built on the thesis. And, and yeah. uh, credit also should go to the Prince of Wales, uh, who he's been a, a, a voice in um, sort of classicism in architecture and, and um, sort of a, an important voice against the, the worst excesses of modernism. Um, but definitely, uh, I would say David Watkin uh, got the ball. Even a stop clock can be right. Yeah, well, maybe. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> I will, but credit, I think, uh, David Watkin got the ball rolling mm-hmm. uh, and it's uh, it's a fantastic work. Good good work and thanks to Christian Kerr for putting Morgan onto that. Um, uh, something a bit more recent is uh, another Netflix show, which is a documentary on uh, Bill Gates. And it's, it's called Inside Bill's Brain. It's very much an authorised look at, at Bill Gates. Uh, it's three episode. It looks at his time building Microsoft, uh, his time, um, his childhood, and also his more recent incarnation 
working with his wife on the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. He's certainly an interesting individual and not just because he's stupendously rich, um, just unimaginably rich. Um, and, you know, for those who are into the philanthropy, I, I do admire the, the foundation. He is trying to bring to that the, the skills that he had in business. Um, he's, you know, for better or for worse, you know, if he's going to do something like eliminate polio, uh, he's funded... Uh, not just the vaccines, but the um, you know new forms of geographic information systems that they can use in Africa. All sorts of programs. He's he's managing it in a very active way. He's not just handing over money. Uh, the thing that I, so it's an interesting thing in its own right. The thing that got me was um, I had a pretty hazy idea of Bill Gates. I'd, I'd always sort of had the view that he'd sort of fluked it a little bit, mm. you know. He just happened to be the guy who wrote DOS and mm. DOS was pretty useful and they got that contract with IBM and, and away he goes. But it does look like, you know, he was actually a bit of a prodigy mm. and he is a compulsive worker. Um, he reads a heck of a lot. Um, uh, if this documentary is to be believed, he's always worked very, very hard. He, he basically yeah. left his original business partner uh, behind in the dusk because this guy wanted to have a life, you know, <laughs> played the guitar and, you know, things like that. Um, well, isn't um, people you know, sort of refer to Bill Gates as someone that dropped out of college uh, as like, oh, you know, mm. you, you know, you don't have to work hard. But no, he worked extraordinarily hard exactly exactly <laughs> yeah i i had thought that too it's like oh yeah you yeah. know yeah college dropout isn't that interesting yeah. but the reason why was he didn't need to finish no. he'd already started the business he was he was hired as a consultant while he was still in school yeah. the local college approached <laughs> uh, him and his friend um because they uh couldn't do their um class schedule for the forthcoming semester and they knew they wanted a computer to do it, but no one at the college knew how to program a computer. So they hired these 15 and 16-year-olds <laughs> to do the programming, mm. uh, which, you know, spat out that, you know, 4,000 students go into 300 different classes with 75 different lecturers and all the, very, you know, in, in X number of rooms. And so he's a clever bugger. He is actually a clever bugger, works ridiculously hard. Uh, and comes from came from a very solid family. Uh, his mother coached him to actually interact with humans a little bit. Uh, that was one of the things his mother did. So I think we will. Uh, so I think it restores a bit of your faith in um, in capitalism and entrepreneurship in the sense that yes, sometimes there are just you know these these unique individuals with uh, above average capacities, above average work ethics, ab above average ability to to build a business. Uh, and build an ethos. Uh, he had his ups and downs. Uh, it does make me admire him a lot more. When I was in um, uh, the US um, uh, in last year, I, I looked at um, uh, the, all the workshops of Edison, and I think you know, a hundred years time, we'll be looking back mm. on Bill Gates in, in you know, and thinking about him in the same way that we think about that heroic age of inventors. Because what he's what he's built is remarkable. What? Mm. What, what, he, what he doesn't have is the sort of brand management of the Steve Jobs. Um, but he's a nicer guy, as I understand. Much nicer. Person. Yes, yes. No, that's um, right. Uh, but he doesn't, he doesn't have that vibe and he doesn't have that cool vibe. He also alienated a lot of people because he was a very early um, proponent of intellectual property protection for software. Um, and he was very angry with um, 
computing communities um, for for pirating his software, but but absolutely he and and of course he he focused very much on on enterprise as well. So he was the capitalism side yes. of the digital revolution. So well, for all those reasons, he's become sort of the the not cool version again. Yeah, mm. and, cool and Steve Jobs. And, w- and without going through the whole show, he does talk about when when they launched antitrust action against him. Uh, about a browser, like when you know, we look back on it now and we just think this is just lunacy. <laughs> that the yeah, the, the, key, the key to the internet and computing and everything was whether or not they preloaded Internet Explorer, <laughs> um, you know. And but he made an ass of himself, you know, um, uh, with with the uh, I think it's the FCC with Congress. Uh, he took the load on himself and came across as a you know a, a, an arrogant turd basically. And um, and and they talk about that. That meanwhile, everyone loves Steve Jobs because you know he's wearing a skivvy and he's really yeah. cool, mm. and um, and his computers look nice. And, and yeah, no, it's very, and they're all so pretty. <laughs> That's right, aren't they pretty? But anyway, and, so and he's a terrible bloke. Yeah, he happens to be an awful human being <laughs> who barely talked to his own family. But uh, yeah, go figure. So there's, there's another good one to watch. Um, don't forget that uh, Looking Forward, which you have been listening to, is a production of the Institute of Public Affairs. Uh, to access our research, please do go to ipa.org.au, where you can also find out how to join or donate if you haven't already done so. A big thank you to our panellists today. First of all, Chris Berg from Spain. Thank you, Scott. Anything in Spanish you'd like to say? Muchas gracias. Very good. Morgan uh, Begg. Sure. <laughs> Thank you. No, no Spanish from me. Yes. <laughs> and, of course, Bella Debera. <laughs> thank you. Thank you, Bella. Uh, and, of course, a big thank you to our producer, Josh Stranger. We'll be back with more Looking Forward next week. 